0: Our reading comes from Matthew 6, 7 through 15. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. We come before you, Father, because we want your name to be hallowed. You deserve all glory and honor, all wisdom and blessing and power is yours. And so we honor you. May this time honor you And in this room, may your will be done. It would be so easy, so easy to deviate from that, fall off into our own will. But your will be done in this room, that your kingdom might be felt here on earth as it is in heaven. And everything that brought us to this point this morning, our breakfasts and our sleep last night and The cars that we drive, all of these are by your hand, your provision, so that we can honor you and do your will and advance your kingdom. Forgive us for all of those times where we have not. We have just fallen off into sin. We have wandered into our own ways. How these these hearts are prone to wander, forgive us. Help us to forgive those who are around us and those who are in our lives. And as we hear your words this morning, and we are tempted to distraction, and we are tempted to, to treat your word as routine or mundane or unimportant, Father, deliver us from those evil ways. And we would see these words, your word, as very precious, food for our souls. And even in our hearing, may we honor your name. We pray this all in Christ's name. Amen. So originally I was supposed to preach this sermon, I planned to preach this sermon on the first Sunday of 2024, which was January 7th, because here at Emmanuel we have a tradition of beginning every year with a focus on prayer, so I was going to take this out of order and preach it on that first Sunday, but that was the week that God sent us snowstorms and church was canceled, and he had other plans, and I suppose I am convinced that he wanted me to preach this sermon today. And for everybody here to hear this sermon, this specific conglomeration of people, to hear this sermon, I don't know why exactly. And so today we focus on prayer. And prayer is at the heart of a Christian life. It certainly should be. It's meant to be a part of our every day and our every gathering. And we hear people say that there is power in prayer, but I think rarely do we really take time to consider how powerful that prayer is, prayer is and how powerfully it, it enters our lives. For God uses prayers to ignite the flames of the soul and to humble the heart and to strengthen the bond between believers and to advance his kingdom. And most importantly of all, he uses prayer to draw us near to him. These are glorious things that happen through prayer. It is so powerful and so easy to neglect. Like if we want to know what it is to have joy in God, if we if we want to be a people who are on fire for Christ, and if we do indeed want to see his kingdom advance beyond these walls, if we well, we need to be a people of prayer. Like if we if what we are going to build together is to be of the Lord, then it needs to first be wrought in prayer. And though I had planned to deliver this sermon over a month ago, I think I can see why God had it delayed. This past Wednesday night, we had a, a missions te- our missions team held a prayer night here at Emmanuel to pray for missions, to pray for the advancement of the gospel from this place, what's happening here around the corner and the things around the world. And 17 people came. At the end of summer, we spent a night praying for our children as they were about to go back to the schools, back to the public schools, sending our children as lambs out among the wolves. And we had a similar turnout, maybe 20. We spend a good amount of time praying during Sunday evening services. It's an integral part of what those services are about. And 30% of you make it a priority. The 17 people who showed up on Wednesday night, four of them were men. All the rest were women. Four were men, and all of those men are elders in this church. We desire to be a people of prayer. I I hear people say it, and yet when I look at the evidence, I wonder. I love the people of this church. Because I love you, I love this church, sometimes shepherds have to say hard things. Are there really so few in this church that understand the power of prayer? Have we forgotten? Are our priorities that far out of order? And I wonder how many people on Wednesday night were trading prayer for a screen. And it grieves me. I know that that's firm. And I know how often I fail to come to the Lord in prayer. I know how easy it is to forget and to get distracted and and to choose things that just feel more practical, because prayer does not feel practical. I know I'm not the man of prayer that I want to be. That's one reason that I took an extra day on my vacation with the encouragement of my wife to just spend a day in solitude and in prayer. And it was a marvelous day. Sadly, it's too infrequent. But we are to be a people of prayer, all of us. And so we're going to look at these words in Matthew chapter 6, the middle of the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching his disciples how to pray. He's, He's teaching us, if we're his disciples, how to pray. Look, verse 7, it says, and when you pray. There's just an assumption in that. Like You're going to be praying. It doesn't qualify that, like, hey, guys, you should be praying. No, when you pray. Because a part of our life, our routine, it's not, it's not even really up for question here. He assumes his disciples will be praying. So as we look at this prayer, what Jesus teaches us, I do hope you see how important prayer is, how integral it needs to be in our lives. And then at the end of this message, we're going to do something a little bit unusual. Buckle up. In the ancient world, and among the Jews, though especially among the Gentiles, the high and pious individuals would who would want to grab the attention of the gods, they would pray long and they would pray loud. And they perceived that the gods were generally uninterested in the affairs of of humans. And so they would do everything that they could do to grab the attention of these celestial beings because they were reluctant to look upon the affairs of man. And so they believed that these big, verbose, dramatic prayers would somehow garner their divine attention. And the longer they prayed, the more likely they were to wear down the gods and get what they wanted out of them. The Jewish Talmud even speaks of the most religious people praying for nine hours a day in this manner. Can you imagine? And Jesus says, do not be like them. Verse 7, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do for they think that they, they will be heard with their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. So Jesus is not prohibiting you from using big words. Go ahead. Throw some big words in there. You're not going to be condemned if your prayer is long or if it is complex. In fact, Jesus even teaches in Luke chapter 18 that your prayers can be long and and should be often, right? Pray and pray and pray until you receive. That's what he teaches in Luke 18, the persistent widow. And if you think that you need to do such things in order for God to hear you, then you misunderstand God. Now add all the words and, and all the gesticulations that you like, and God isn't going to hear you any better for them. The point that that Jesus makes is that God does not require these big, dramatic, verbose things. And he's not moved more by them than he is a simple, quiet prayer. The point is, no matter how you pray, if you pray in earnest, God hears you. Which is totally counterintuitive to the ancient world who thought that that God didn't care about us. And Jesus says he does he even knows what you need before you pray it. Jesus wants to see that, that God is, he, He's engaged, He's involved, He is loving like a loving Father. Right? He is our heavenly Father. More on that in a moment. And Jesus' statement in verse 8 it, it causes many to ask if God already knows what we need before we even pray it, then what is the point of praying it? He knows it, so well, we will see that in the next section, that answer is crystal clear. I hope it becomes crystal clear. But I'll say this. Prayer puts us in a position of dependency. And prayer recognizes the position, of authority, and provision, and godness that is God. So it rightly orients us with God. Prayer is doing that. More on that in a bit. So with with God rightly understood as being the provider, the holder of all things, as being a loving Father who's listening and engaged, He gives us a model for prayer that is not big and it is not dramatic. In fact, it is simple and it is concise and clear and comprehensive and it is, of course, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Look again at it. We've heard it now three times. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name your kingdom come your will be done on earth as it is in heaven give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors and lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil once again i remind you he's delivering this in the sermon on the mount which he is he's speaking to his disciples A few sentences, sentences before, he gives his disciples this pattern of prayer, and he says, when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. It's like, go behind quiet doors, go by yourself, go where nobody sees you and pray there. And yet the Lord's Prayer, which I just read, starts with the word, our, our Father, And see, the whole prayer is wrapped in plural pronouns. Our Father, our food, our temptations. So though the Lord's Prayer can certainly be used for personal devotion and in that secret place, in that closed closet, it's also meant to be prayed in community. It's meant to be done in our, in our midst together, the community of the church. And so these words are sacred, not just for you personally, but for us together, us collectively. And yeah, they're sacred words, but it doesn't mean that we're supposed to repeat these words verbatim, as we see in some other iterations of the church. These are not some immutable words of a religious rite. Though if you want, you can use the exact words. Truly, Jesus is giving us a pattern that is to be followed, and it's flexible enough for every situation in your life. And in fact, Jesus, in a very different context, Jesus takes these words in the prayer, and then he changes them to fit that different context. And you can find that in Luke chapter 11, verses 1 through 4, if you want. So, so it's like this. When you talk to your Father, who is in heaven, he's a good Father, He's a loving, listening, engaged Father, and He doesn't need you to use specific, exact words when you speak to Him. No, His attention is already yours. He doesn't need you to put on speeches or shows. He just wants to hear from you. He just wants to be near you because He is your Father, and He loves you. how much does your Father love you? Can you measure it? Can you articulate it? We see it demonstrated in the most profound, beautiful, mind blowing way on that cross and in that empty tomb. His great love for his children. And he is listening, loving you beyond measure in spite of all of your failures and everything that you get wrong and all of your dirtiness. He is abounding in grace and mercy and delight. He is your father. And yet he is in heaven, and he is infinite, and he is all-seeing. He is a consuming fire, our Father in heaven. And it forces us to hold this tension. We love him, and we respect him. We have affection for him, and we hold him in awe. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. To be holy is to be set apart. It's to be high and lifted up. To be worthy of worship and honor and, and that awe. And hallowed, hallowed, however you like to say it. It means to hold as holy. To position as holy. Hallowed be your name. It's a prayer that people recognize and acknowledge that God is Holy holy. Holy, holy. And the cherubim who see his presence and the seraphim circle him day and night for all eternity crying, Holy, holy, holy. Because his majesty is so tremendous that there are no greater words to capture it. And they never weary of crying, Holy, holy, holy. And so if God were to answer this prayer on this earth, it would be as the The prophet Habakkuk prophesied, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And how much do the waters cover the sea? Entirely, completely. Imagine if this earth was covered with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord in such a way, permeating every bit of it. Hallowed be your name. you know, if this prayer were answered, hallowed be your name fully, then the entirety of the rest of this prayer is also answered. And yet, in an amazing way, when you pray the prayer, it's answered. Because aren't you hallowing his name even in saying, hallowed be your name? Yes, hallowed be your name. Father, hallowed be your name here in this heart. Your kingdom come. Already in our study of Matthew, we've seen that Christ's kingdom has come. It's come in him. He is the seed of the kingdom. He's brought it, and he's announced it at the beginning of his ministry in chapter 4, verse 17. He said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And as I have said, this whole Sermon on the Mount is about what that kingdom looks like, how the disciples are to live within this new kingdom that is broken upon the earth. But the nature of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, is that it's a hidden kingdom. It's like leaven that's folded into a lump, or it's like a lump of dough, or it's like a dash of salt that's been thrown into your dinner. It's something you cannot see, but when it's present, you know it, you taste it, you feel it. It's there in your midst. It's how it is with the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so when we pray that God's kingdom would come, we pray that it would come in greater fullness. It's here we can taste it, but we want more of it. This is the nature of the kingdom of heaven. It's already here, but it's not yet here in its fullness. It's an already-not-yet kind of kingdom. And the very essence of this kingdom is where the will of God is being done, which is why we pray your will be done. How be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. You know, doing the will of God is what it means to be a disciple. You say, you're essentially praying when you pray personally, help me to be a disciple of yours. You pray collectively, help us to be disciples of yours. So as we pray, your will be done. We then must live. It's not like we pray it and then hope that in some ethereal sense it just sort of manifests around us, but we live it. We live to do the will of God. What we pray, we must do, and in so doing, the prayer, again, it finds its partial answer. Of course, when we do pray it, we're often thinking uh, beyond ourselves. Yes. Help me to do your will, but we also want his will to be done beyond us, like in this body, in this Mohawk Valley, in this nation, and so on. Or, as it says, on earth as it is in heaven. This is a beautiful prayer. Because it's for right now, right in this moment, and it is also for the consummation of all things. So it's, it's so practical and present, and yet it's eschatological and enormous this simple prayer. May God's will be done right now in this circumstance that I face. May heaven come to this moment that I'm living in right here that feels like hell. And may God's will be done perfectly across this planet as it is in heaven. But God's Will being done on earth as it is in heaven or or on earth as in heaven doesn't just apply to God's will, though it does apply to God's will, but it also applies to his kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. It applies to God's name being hallowed on earth as it is in heaven. May it all come to this moment, all to this place. Your hallowing, your kingdom, your will, now, in this heart, in this place, out from here to the ends of the earth. As in heaven, so on earth. You see the three petitions? It should be obvious. Hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Each one of these three petitions have to do with heaven's realities breaking upon the earth. Like heaven transforming this planet that we live in. And not some future planet, like this one will be destroyed and another one will come. No, God answers his prayers. This one, this one is where his will will be done and his kingdom will come and his name will be hallowed. Why else are we praying for it? And then we move to three different petitions. The things of earth serving the purposes of heaven first one, give us this day our daily bread. You know, we've seen it in some recent sermons, particularly in December, where Jesus is the bread of life. He's our life. He's our deepest sustenance. Like We have nowhere else to go but him, for he holds the words of life. And nonetheless, we still need food. We still need to eat. That's what Jesus is talking about here, bread, actual doughy baked bread. I think it's really amazing that Jesus and our Heavenly Father really take seriously our physical needs, concerned about your, your body and what sustains it. Jesus is going to speak a lot more on this in chapter, later in chapter 6, we'll go there. But know that that's also a lot more than just bread. It's about all of our physical needs. So food and water and clothing and health and your shelter and, and your rent. Right? and All these things that sustain you physically. So no matter how, know that no matter how hard you work, no matter what you can collect for yourself, no matter what you can purchase, praying that God would give us our daily bread is to acknowledge that it all comes from Him. It all comes from Him. Without Him, we have nothing. And in the most ultimate sense, nothing that we have has come from our own provision. You have nothing, nothing, that you have provided for yourself. All from His hand. And we don't ask for our daily bread simply so, so that we're not hungry. So that these cravings stop. So that we don't just have clothes that we like. It's not why we're asking. We ask for our daily bread so that we have the strength to do his will and to advance his kingdom and hallow his name. Like, God, like, give me health so that with that health I can glorify you. It's like we read in the Proverbs Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. So we ask God to meet our physical needs so that we can honor him with our bodies, our voices, our obedience. You are not your own, you are bought with a price. So honor him with everything that you are. It's why we ask for bread to sustain what we are in the hallowing of his name, in the advancing of his kingdom, in the doing of his will. Whether it's bread or housing or clothing or health or whatever, all for his glory, all for his name's sake. And similarly, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And when you pray that prayer, it immediately indicates that you are a debtor. It acknowledges your your sinful estate, that our sins, our pride, our selfishness, our lust they are all offenses against this holy God. And these offenses, they violate his will. They exist in violation of his kingdom. And now we owe this great debt such magnitude that you can never hope to repay it, that it will take all eternity to swallow it up, and even at the end of eternity is there an end. So we must come to our God, our Father, who is ready to lavish mercy upon the humble and the lowly in heart. Father, forgive me. It's as the Apostle John writes, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. and The truth is not in Else. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So through this prayer, forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. God is answering the prayer and removing from you your debts. He is forgiving you of your debts. He's separating you as far as the east is from the west from your sins. You know, though, it's not just your debts that are forgiven. He's forgiving the debtor, the person. I think it's easy to think of this in some mechanical or, or like an accounting sense where There's you, and here's a list of all of your debts, and God just strikes them off in forgiveness. Though it's true, it's not just mechanical or legal. He looks upon you who has incurred such debt, seeing all that debt, seeing all those terrible decisions and all those offenses. He looks at you, and his heart overflows with love for you. He abounds in love and steadfast mercy. He is slow to anger. And all of a sudden, that eternal waterfall of love is poured out on you, son or daughter of God, and you are forgiveness forgiven. He forgives to the utmost. And this forgiveness is meant necessarily to be reciprocal, Right? As we have been loved by God, so are we to love. As we have been forgiven, so are we to forgive. And Jesus' prayer assumes an attitude of love and forgiveness like that. Right? Um, he's going to go on to remove an assumption in verses 14 and 15, which we will get to soon. But it assumes this attitude of love and forgiveness within his disciples. More on that shortly. Jesus then prays, and and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So The first thing I have to say is that God doesn't tempt. That would be a misunderstanding of what Jesus says. Listen to what James writes. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So God does not tempt. Jesus is not saying otherwise, not implying something different. Rather, he's following that Petition for forgiveness. This is a petition that God would protect us from sinning any further. Forgive us from what we have sinned in. Protect us from falling into any further sin. Hold us back from being tempted as we are so prone to throw ourselves into those temptations. So it's like, it's praying like this God, keep me far from anything that would cause me to sin. You know that you need food. You know that you need forgiveness. How much do we know we need to be protected from temptation? Temptation is right there all the time, ready to grab your heart, pull it away from God. Oh, protect me, God. Deliver us from evil. So when my sinful heart, my sinful desires are screaming at me to indulge, Father, protect me from evil. Keep me from making that decision. Wield the powers of heaven and steal me away from my own destruction. So we have a pattern of three and three. Three petitions where we pray, heaven's realities break upon the earth. Three petitions where the things of earth may serve the purposes of heaven. Our food, our forgiveness, our deliverance, our lives, so that what is true in heaven may be true on earth. Hallowed be your name. All of them serve that ultimate end, that the name of God would be hallowed. In verses 14 and 15, we read, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Those are pretty challenging words. Uh, again, later in the sermon series, in the Sermon on the Mount, we'll spend a lot more time talking about forgiveness. So I'm only going to briefly cover these two verses here, though a lot more could be said about them. Your act of forgiveness does not merit God's forgiveness for you. Right? It'd be easy to say, think that Jesus is saying, if you forgive, then God will forgive you. No your act of forgiveness does not merit God's forgiveness towards you. Rather, our forgiveness towards others is evidence of God's grace at work within us. It's evidence that we have received His forgiveness, and it's His forgiveness that's flowing out of us onto those around us. So if we fail to forgive, it means that we do not understand the forgiveness of our Father. If you hold forgiveness back and instead hold bitterness in your heart or a grudge, it means you don't know your Father who would never do such a thing and thank God. Because why should He love you or me? Thank God that His forgiveness is wrought entirely, purely in love. Thus we return to that statement: if, As we ask to be forgiven, so we are to forgive. First John four nineteen: We love because he first loved us. So substituting a word, love for forgiveness, we forgive because he first forgave us. That's why we forgive, and it doesn't matter how offensive it was to you. We forgive because he first forgave. And he forgave you long before you were ever born. He forgave you in plain sight of every evil thing you have ever committed. He forgave you as he watched his innocent son bleeding in agony on that cross. He forgave you. Jesus even hanging there. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Before that, he instituted the Lord's Supper, and at that last supper, he said, he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to his disciples, saying, drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for what? the forgiveness of sins. If you are an unforgiving person have you ever tasted the blood of this covenant? For if you forgive others their trespasses your heavenly Father will also forgive you but if you do not forgive others their trespasses neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. How great was our debt and how great is the forgiveness. We cannot measure the price that was paid for forgiveness. How then can we withhold? How then can we withhold miserable debtors though we are from forgiving others? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name as we forgive others. Now somewhere around this time I would stop, I'd close this book and pray. I'm not going to do that today. Instead, we're going to take the next 10 minutes and we're going to practice it. We definitely need practice. So, what I'd like to do is for you to grab four, five, six other people in this room from anywhere in this room and pray together. And I'm not going to give you any instructions or a focus You've received, I think, amazing instruction from Christ himself in this Sermon on the Mount. So take these next 10 minutes and just pray with these people in whatever direction that God leads you. I just ask one thing, don't make it self-focused. And then after those 10 minutes, a few members of the worship team are gonna come up here and um, play a song for us entitled The Lord's Prayer. Um, And we'll close from there. So gather some people, let's pray.